You're listening to episode 22 of the NASA in Silicon Valley podcast. Today's guest is Lynn Rothschild, NASA researcher for astrobiology and synthetic biology. We discussed the journey to Mars and how new upcoming technologies can help us on the way. We also talk about how understanding life in extreme locations on Earth can help us better understand the possibilities of life in our solar system and beyond. Without further ado, here is Lynn Rothschild. What brought you to NASA? How did you end up in Silicon Valley at NASA? Well, I never, ever thought that I would end up here. Um, I'm a New Englander. I okay. grew up in Connecticut. I was actually born in New York. I'm trying not to sound too New York for you. But um, I'm a New Englander. And um, how I ended up at NASA was, uh, well, it's not a complete mystery. I think I've now put the pieces <laughs> together over the last 20 years or so. But what happened was I'm an evolutionary biologist by love and by training and a protistologist even before that because I love little things like amoebae and paramecia okay. and so on and, and actually raised them when I was a kid, you know, <laughs> went into the, the smelly water and looked under a microscope and all that sort of stuff. And um, so I ended up doing a PhD at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island on the evolution of chloroplasts in different okay. algae and seaweeds and so on. Um, and a professor at Harvard very kindly invited me to give a seminar there. And so I gave this seminar on the evolution of chloroplasts. And when I sat down, he looked at me and he said, did you know that NASA would have funded your PhD? And I looked at him, <laughs> are you crazy? NASA is a space agency. He said, no, what they're really, right, they're really interested in the origin and early evolution of life because of the interest in life elsewhere in the universe. And so I just thought that was insane, but I didn't think that much about it. But this is the piece that I have finally put together. I confronted him finally, and sure enough, he gave NASA my name. And oh, next really? thing I knew, I was getting Aha. advertisements for postdoctoral fellowships. Yeah, you start getting and, those emails. Yeah, and well, no, this was <laughs> oh, way okay. before email, young man. <laughs> in the old I, days, we, we sent were in our, high school together. No, course. we sent our carrier pigeons in those <laughs> nice. days. No, it wasn't quite that. Although NASA did get me started on email, but that point we're using mainframes and so on. Okay, I'm terribly, so, terribly old. So, they, so they anyway. Got you yeah, yeah. So, I got the, so I got this thing, and they said they were looking for people with a background in microbiology and evolution. I thought, weird, but why not? And I got an offer from NASA, and I got an order offer actually from the Canadian government as well, which is wow. a little odd because I'm not a Canadian. Okay. But um, <laughs> they had some really good people up there that I was thinking of working with, and it was a very hard decision um, because I would have loved to have worked in this lab in Halifax. But in the end, I thought, you know, I'm a U.S. citizen, and NASA <laughs> is kind of cool, and well, you know, California certainly. Oh, so it was like not only just join NASA, but it was like come well, to California. Well, no, it's more than that. So I'd send in my application, and then okay. a couple of months later, I got a cold call from Ames, um, oh. and this was in February, and it was snowing and so on. I remember answering the phone, and the conversation basically boiled down to, how would you like to work for NASA? How would you like to move to California? How would you like to look for life on Mars? And how would you like to go to the Antarctic? <laughs> You're like, and, all of the above, Right, <laughs> and so I have done everything except the Antarctic now in my career at NASA. And so I came here as a postdoc, thinking I was only going to stay for two years. Okay. And this was way around 1987. Ish. Ish, ish. And the result was I ended up staying and eventually being hired as a civil servant and made this my career. Wow. Okay. So when you came in, has it always been focusing on like 
earth science kind of stuff, I'm guessing, or is it Not a mix? really, but NASA is sort of strange because when you say earth science to most people listening, they think of geology, for example. Absolutely, yeah, yeah totally. Right. Whereas NASA, earth science means something completely different. It means <laughs> using space to look back at planet Earth. And then, of course, we have the aeronautics. And then the rest of NASA is really focused on going forth from planet Earth, whether it's to our near neighbors like the moon Mm -hmm. or even ISS, the space station, which is even closer than the moon, or beyond, whether you're talking about Mars or Enceladus or Europa or Pluto or other galaxies far, far beyond and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So so Earth science is looking back on the Earth. It's not necessarily just geology. It's also biology. But I actually came in... to a group that was very interested in looking for life elsewhere in the universe, which is what I was, and um, early evolution, which is what I was doing. And so I quickly went from continuing on my thesis sort of work on the evolution of chloroplasts to using ecosystems in extreme environments as a way to get an idea of life on early Earth and what the limits might be for Mm -hmm. ecosystems elsewhere in our environment. And that's when I started going to places like Baja California and Yellowstone and all that sort of stuff. Did you do the whole Chile kind of thing? Everybody talks about the Atacama Desert. Um, Well, better than that. I actually did do Bolivia a couple of times where we drove through the Atacama. That was just part of our commute to work. So we ultimately ended up at 15,000 feet above the Atacama. um, And that was very cool because... Well, it was cool. It was, it's the, these are high <laughs> deserts. The oxygen level is low enough that you notice. Obviously, it's not like outer space. There's enough that you yeah. can breathe. But you do notice that you do take <laughs> medication for a few days before so that you can start to get your efficiency up. Um, so the ultraviolet radiation levels are very high, which I've been very interested in, in measuring. So there were a lot of very cool parts about going there. But yes, we did that. Um, I did a very interesting field trip into the outback in Australia oh, to wow. a radioactive pond. Let's see, two field trips to the Rift Valley in Kenya, which wow. is some of the highest pH lakes in the world. Of course, Yellowstone for the low pH, high temperature. One to New Zealand for the also low pH, high temperature. <laughs> you know, extreme environment. I'm um, I was there. And and so did a lot of that for many years, and then a lot of work in the lab following mm-hmm. through on, on this sort of thing, hunting for new organisms that could deal with different levels of things, understanding a bit how they function, looking at the diversity and all that sort of stuff. Thinking of NASA as a place that looks for life on other planets, we have a perfect example of a planet right you know underneath our feet well to it's help not learn. Uh, let me say it's or, you know, not a perfect example okay. it's the only example <laughs> that's the problem and as i've been explaining to people yeah. it would be like saying i read one book so therefore i'm qualified to be a professor of english literature Very you true. would laugh at me and say one book haha but that's the position we're in with looking for life in the universe wow. we only have one book and so the question is from what we know about this one book, do we have a good grasp of what life might be like elsewhere, or is it just that we read one book? And I think the the best example there is looking at our own solar system. Mm-hmm. Now, up to fairly recently, we only had an example of one solar system that we really knew anything yeah. about, and that was our own little Yes. Solar system, you know, Mercury, Venus, Earth, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but it turns out with uh, the missions like the Kepler mission, which we're, of course, very proud of because it's a NASA Ames mission. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, we now know about literally 
thousands of solar systems. And it turns out that we are not typical. We're atypical. And so what if it turned out that we knew about 3,000 different life forms, and it turns out that we were not typical. We were Mm. atypical. We don't know. We don't even have a second example of life. So like I say, it's not that we have a perfect Perfect. example here. It's the only one we've got. Our example. Right. (laughs) Just one. One. Exactly. But but it's also really interesting of – what we typically know about you know biology and life but then as you're talking about finding life in the most extreme cases where we probably would never assume that anything would be alive right so the the reason we're interested in that i mean of course we humans in general not nasa but my put it on my hat that i occasionally wear as a human being yes we're interested in life in in extreme (laughs) environments because they have biotech potential they give us an idea of the diversity of life on earth um and Mm -hmm. so on and so forth But in terms of the astrobiology, the looking for life elsewhere, the reason we're interested in this is because out there we have a universe with habitable bodies, whether Mm -hmm. they're moons or planets or even asteroids, that are not all like planet Earth. And so say we find something that's just a little bit hotter or a little bit colder or a little bit whatever. Now, we have to start by looking at what the limits are for life on Earth and see if it overlaps. So if we know of an organism on the Earth, for example, that can live in basically boiling battery acids, so say, you know, like <laughs> okay. pH zero and, and, and boiling, and we find a place elsewhere, like, well, we might have found on Venus yeah. human, if we'd gotten there billion years ago, whatever. Yes. Okay. Anyway, if we find a place like that, we don't just laugh and say, oh, that's boiling battery acid. We've seen that before. <laughs> we do say, oh, it's boiling battery acid. We've seen that before, and it had life in it. Now, it doesn't uh, okay. mean that there's life there. It doesn't mean it's the same life, but it says it's at least possible. Okay. Now, that then, so it, it gives you an idea of the minimum envelope for life by understanding the extremes of life on the Earth. But that sort of segues into what I've been doing the last eight or nine years at NASA, and that is focusing, um, I guess, much of my attention, but my heart's still in the astrobiology, and actually I do do some Earth science as well, looking back at planet Earth, because I I do happen to live on Earth, and it is our only example of life. A little biased. And I I obviously am very interested (laughs) in things like phytoplankton blooms and harmful algal blooms and so on. Like um, most of us are, of course. Yeah, because my heart's still in the, the <laughs> microbes. Um, so yes, I am. But about um, eight or nine years ago, I was asked to start a program in synthetic biology for the okay, agency. Cool. And so what synthetic biology is all about is using life as a technology. So we're used to at NASA dealing with things that have an on-off switch. Because to a large extent, we are a tech organization, but mm-hmm. we're like, you know, 10987654321, and you send the rocket ship off yeah. to space, and heat shields, and propulsion systems, Absolutely. and EDL, entry, descent, and landing. Oh, I bet yeah. you didn't think I knew all those things. Yeah. So yeah, we're, we've been all about that kind of thing, but... We now are in an age of bioengineering where mm-hmm. life is, is presenting itself more and more as a viable technological alternative. And okay. that includes some of the things that I was talking about a moment ago about life in the extremes. So yeah. let's go back to the idea of what happens if I have a colleague who's an astronomer, um, maybe someone who's been looking at the Kepler data and says to me, Lynn, I have found the perfect habitable body. 
The only thing is you tell me that the highest temperature organism on the Earth lives at 121, 122 Celsius. So above the boiling temperature of water, but, you know, not that much. Okay. So this place is perfect, but it's at 130. Do I have to cross it off the list? I've been joking. You know, do I send them away crying? <laughs> and, you know, the, the thought of an astronomer crying is, you Holding know. Holding their head in just, shame. Oh, shame and upset, you know. And then you got to hand them Kleenex. You, know, it's, uh, you don't want to see an astronomer ordeal. cry. Right, it's a whole ordeal. So I don't want to do that, of course. So no, I say, course. no, 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 no. You know, sit down, blow your nose. Let's see if we can make an organism that could live under those conditions. Oh, wow. Okay. So in general, we're not talking about making things from scratch. We're talking about tweaking. So we have okay. an... And, and some of my students have done this. They call it the Hell Cell Project, which I love. Okay. So you take an organism that maybe can normally only live up to 80 or 100, and you give it some extra genes that maybe could yeah. allow it to live at a higher temperature. Now, it turns out high temperature is a relatively difficult thing to do. Yeah. But say you take an organism and you give it a few extra genes to allow it to live at pH zero or maybe below. So okay. in a very acidic environment, and then you can say, well, if this planet's very very acidic and cold and this and that, we can mix and match genes that would not normally be found in nature together. I mean, when I say we're not normally, we have not found them in nature yes, together. And we so just put them together and say, okay, we now have an example of an organism that could have lived there or could live there. And so, yes, this is still on the suspect list. So wow. I see synthetic biology as a way to expand our envelope for life without even having to get onto a rocket ship. However, there are a lot of other reasons that NASA is interested in synthetic biology, and the big thing is enabling human exploration. Now, our big problem, I've just been in a meeting in Washington, and yeah. people are talking about actually making biosensors, and the concern was mass market and getting them to point-of-care diagnostics and so on. And, and then they're concerned about you know beating the current economy if someone is used to looking through a microscope for a diagnosis instead of using this, how do you get them to switch and all that? Yeah. None of this is our problem. This is not <laughs> our problem. Our problem is getting people or robots into space mm-hmm. and being successful in their missions and sending back the science and the technology yes. and so on that we need. So our problem isn't worrying about, well, what if you upset the farmers here because they're using this in the petrochemical industry? No, our problem is up mass, worrying about fighting gravity. We're not fighting another company. We're fighting gravity. And that is an incredibly expensive thing to be fighting. Yes. And also volume to some extent, because if you're taking up some space in a rocket ship, for one thing, you're not being able to use it for something else. And so if we can dramatically decrease the amount that we have to launch into space, that should be able to greatly expand what we can do in space. And so now let's go back to this idea of life as a technology. You tell me of any other technology that is modular, self-replicating, self-repairing, can grow, doesn't need a petrochemical input, does not need an electrical input, you know, and I could go on and on. But there, if you start thinking of life as a technology, there are a lot of things we can do.
even something as bizarre as maybe generating electricity. Okay. You and I are both doing that right now. We, yeah. yeah. Your brains, exactly. synapse firing. Exactly. Now, we don't get our brains and our synapses to fire and generate electricity by plugging ourselves into a socket no. in the morning. No. In well, fact, maybe we, once when you're little, right. but then you learn. We do not recommend this. Then we you do, learn. Yeah. We do not recommend this. <laughs> However, you may well have eaten lunch today or had breakfast. At some point, you ate. Mm-hmm. And so what you're doing in your body is converting that chemical energy into electrical energy. The electric eel certainly does that. You know, every sentient organism does that. There are even some bacteria. So why not sort of mix and match these genes and take advantage of um, using chemical energy to generate electrical energy, for example? Mm -hmm. But let's dial it back from the really, you know, Star Trek-y stuff to even something that's, that's very obvious, and that is food. Okay, you you may have seen The Martian. Yes. Growing food on Mars is going to be somewhat of a challenge. There are things like perchlorates in the soil, but we do know okay. bacteria on the Earth that deal with high levels of perchlorates. Okay. And they've got de- detoxification mechanisms. Why not put those genes in the potato plant that The Martian okay. used and therefore Give be able boost. to use, yeah, um, use the Martian regolith uh, to grow it without a lot of treatment? Or think about, you know, any, anything you eat has been growing. So if you could do it more efficiently off planet or maybe use biology for chemistry, as we've been doing yeah. literally for millions of years, making alcohol, making <sighs> material products. Um, I don't know exactly what your clothes are made of. I'm wearing <laughs> a lot of cotton today. Yeah, Cotton, of course, is made by um cotton plants and that's about 95 percent cellulose <laughs> yes. we have bacteria that makes 100 percent cellulose oh wow um why not take some of those capabilities the ability to make wool for example keratin mm-hmm. um the ability to make silk or even spider silk which is supposed to be stronger than kevlar or even making kevlar itself which some of my students oh, have been working on really why not take those biological capabilities Put them in a form factor like a yeast cell, something like you bake bread with, and take that with you to Mars. (laughs) So then you can start making these products because we're not going to be able to take sheep and trees and and (laughs) or bread makers, right? (laughs) But we can, but we can take the capabilities with us, and that is one of the great promises of synthetic biology. I think for NASA is this ability to take this genetic hardware store that we have on the earth um, maybe augmented by making a few new capabilities put it in different Mm -hmm. form factors so that you're not hauling up sheep and so on and use that to enable human missions imagine an astronaut gets sick for example on mars and you can't possibly bring every drug that has ever been invented and even if you could they would go bad and there may be other ones invented but a lot of them are made by organisms so you have your little tiny production facility on Mars and someone gets when an astronaut gets sick and a doctor says you know this would be the perfect drug for it so another astronaut who's feeling a little bit better receives the information on how to make this piece of DNA on Mars they go ahead synthesize it pop it in a bacterium the bacterium makes an augmented yogurt or um, or or just a pure chicken soup sort of thing you give it to the astronaut the astronaut's fine so that's that's actually illustrates another point of the synthetic biology we're at the point that you don't have to have the physical continuum so 
our DNA, our genetic information is a digital code, just yeah. like you have in a computer and so on. Exactly. And so there's no reason now that we've cracked that code, thanks to Watson and Crick and all the great huh. you know molecular biologists have come after that, we don't actually have to physically take the code. We just need to send that information, that coding information elsewhere, and then you can make the physical capabilities there. And so wow. that's also gotten to be a very cool thing with synthetic biology is, is breaking that physical link. It's fascinating seeing the connection of space and biology, all of these different fields all coming together. Oh, absolutely. It's just, yeah, it's So amazing. synthetic biology is actually a little bit unusual for NASA in that usually when we're involved in a technology, we are either the leaders or the only people in the world <laughs> who do it. So something like heat shields. It's like not your, your average company doesn't care about yeah. heat shields and reentry vehicles. And, you know, somebody's got to care about those things. Right. So we, we got it. We do. Yes. But synthetic biology biology is very different for us in that there is a huge external investment, primarily in the United States, Europe, the United Kingdom, and, okay. so, and, and a few other countries. Um, obviously, there's commercial aspects. Right. Everybody's interested absolutely. in this uh, science. Absolutely. NASA can use it, can use it but so can other right. sectors. And, and so since there is such a big investment with the national agencies, the military agencies for potential use, and it's not necessarily sinister, we're not talking about no. you know biological warfare, but maybe making a better um, shield or being okay. able to store blood for the battlefield better, you know, whatever, um, as well as certainly the commercial interest. In making hospitals. Yeah, and, and better diagnostics. And making products like insulin is made transgenically. Um, I know companies that are starting to use synthetic biology to make new perfumes and okay. scents and, you know, all sorts of things. And it's not that it's artificial. It's exactly the same molecule, but you're not yeah. having to rip up orchids or whatever to do it that you can make a pure <laughs> form. So there are lots of, you know, there's lots of all these other commercial and government and military and blah, blah, blah interests. And so the important thing for NASA here is to keep our eyes and ears open yeah. to what the outside community is doing that we can adapt for our own use, mm -hmm. leverage that investment. And then we bring a couple of things to the table. For example, this idea that that we don't have to compete with an existing commercial infrastructure or a petrochemical you know, industry or anything like that, that we can be free to try things yeah. that maybe would not be competitive on the earth right now, but yeah. we're able to explore this, this uh, application or technology and maybe it will revolutionize the earth as well as space at some point. Or, or stuff that, that you know a, a company wouldn't be able to invest in because it, you wouldn't see any fruits of that for years down exactly. the road, and they wouldn't even be around. Exactly, in that time. and I've been very fortunate and to so. get a couple of grants from NASA from a program, the NIAC program, oh, which wow. specifically looks at futuristic sorts of technologies that we might be using in 10, 20, 30 years. And so we actually had one on bioprinting, which we're continuing, um, making structural materials, printing cells that can then produce whatever material. So imagine, for example, a bone. Now, mm -hmm. the Neanderthals, I think we have evidence, built huts out of bone. If you tried to get permission to build um, you know, a house in Silicon Valley out of bone or basically anywhere in the world, you would probably be not only flatly to turn down for a permit, there would probably be <laughs> nice. <laughs> other sorts of repercussions. Yes. But maybe bone's a perfectly good building material. So what if 
I could take cells and engineer them to secrete the various bits of a bone, just like you're doing in your body now. Okay. I'm doing, so it's not anything exotic. It's just uh, taking it out and printing the right it. confirmation so that you could make beams or sheets of bone, and you could use it as a building material. You would probably call it something else so, oh, wow. to hide it, but why not? You know, So you have all these potential things. But anyway, we can try these things. As I explained earlier, we have this long-standing, the agency has a long-standing interest in life in extreme environments, which also has a lot of um, potential applications for synthetic biology, because there are times that you may well want to do a process at a very high temperature or low temperature, high pH or low yeah. pH for various reasons. And so we've been the leaders in that, and we've also been the leaders in origin of life research over literally decades. Um, and so sometimes you may be taking approaches where you're re-evolving a capability or you're going back and looking at what early life might have done or what the alternate routes are for synthetic biology. So I believe that we have a very interesting um, but an important niche in yeah. this federal and international ecosystem of synthetic biology. Small but important. Excellent. Well, I have a feeling you're going to be our returning Jeopardy champion because oh. this just flies oh. by and it is completely fascinating. So for people who are listening, if you have any questions for Lynn, um, we're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. We are on Twitter at NASA Ames. Um, feel free to shoot us any info and we'll loop in with Lynn. This has been amazing. Well, thank you. I've had a great time. <laughs> <laughs>